All right, thank all of you for joining us in the last Chaplaincy uh, Innovation Lab webinar of the year. We are joined today by Biba Tata, who is a staff chaplain at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, however, I know Biba uh, for another reason. She is a fellow of the Transforming Chaplaincy Project out of, uh, out of Rush University and supported by the John Templeton Foundation. Uh, so Biba really is on the, uh, on the cutting edge of chaplaincy research literacy uh, and conducting research. And she is part of the sort of the next generation of what it means to be a research literate chaplain. And so we're really happy to have her here with us today. Thank you, Biba. I know this is a, a really busy time of the year for everybody, but especially for chaplains. Um, and as we get into the winter, I know healthcare kind of changes a little bit too. So. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time this afternoon to talk with us for a little while. And so I will open with basically the same question I ask everybody, and that is, tell us your background and how did you end up uh, as a chaplain at the Mayo Clinic? Thank you, Michael, and thanks to all those who are watching at this time. Um, I started out my career as a health counselor for HIV and AIDS patients, so I would counsel them before they go for their test and after they come back for, from their test. And in doing this work, I realized that there is a lot of brokenness in the world. There are a lot of things going on. And I thought to myself, what are the ways that I can bring the presence of God to these people? How can I journey with them in ways that are beyond the physical? And so I said, I think I would like to add the spiritual components to the work that I was doing. And that is what led me to a theology school. So I went to the uh, Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley, California. That's where I obtained my MD. And it is during these years, my years there, that I learned about the clinical pastoral education. And when I heard about it, something within me clicked. And I said, what? That, this is the thing that I want to do, be an, uh, work in a hospital setting and bringing spiritual emotional care to people who are suffering. And so after theology school, I went into chaplaincy. So I did my first residency in an all-psych hospital, St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., where 75% of the uh, spiritual care I was providing was through uh, spirituality groups. So after that, I decided to go broader and to bring myself into another kind of hospital setting. Mm -hmm. So I went over to the uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, which is a level one trauma hospital. So I did my second year of residency there. So after that residency, I worked for a few months at uh, Bon Secours in Richmond, Virginia, mm -hmm. which is a, a Catholic uh, health system. And there I was doing, apart from bedside work, I was also training volunteers for uh, or preparing volunteers to do the No One Dies Alone program. Mm -hmm. so it was just a part-time work. So after being there for a few months, I was hired at uh, Mayo Clinic in 2015. And I, bec I became uh, APC board certified that same year. And my second year, during my second year of working at Mayo, I was fortunate and blessed to obtain the fellowship from uh, John Templeton Foundation to do a master's in public health at the University of Minnesota. So right now I am a transforming chaplaincy research fellow and a staff chaplain at Mayo Clinic. 
where I've been, I cover uh, the medical ICUs, the neuro ICU, and uh, the rehab rehab units. So that's how I found myself here. And I've also accepted the role to be a volunteer uh, APC state representative for Minnesota chaplains. You know, I think that um, that many people they end up familiar with chaplains who work in a very specific sector. And so that's, that's kind of how my you know, career has gone with working with chaplains in, in one very particular sector and then with starting work with the Transforming Chaplaincy Project, really getting introduced to so many different healthcare chaplains. But of course, the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab is interested in bringing all chaplains together. And so I'm looking at the, uh, the audience now and I know that we have quite a few healthcare chaplains, but quite a few who are not healthcare chaplains as well. So I'm wondering if you could if you could sort of explain to us what it's like to provide chaplaincy and spiritual care in different settings within healthcare, because it might not be obvious to people sort of on the outside that, you know, you don't just go into a hospital and provide the same kind of spiritual care to everybody in there. The department makes a difference. What does that look like for you? Now, that's a very important question because I have come to realize as well that departments within the healthcare system is di are different. So there is an amazing work that we did when I was a resident at the Virginia Commonwealth University. The spiritual care department did a, uh, a research project initiated by Dr. Diane Dodd McHugh. And it was to learn about the organizational culture of each department within the hospital. And we found that an understanding of the organizational culture would serve as a foundation for chaplains to tailor their activities accordingly, following the different kinds of things that are happening in different departments. And we looked at dimensions of different things like the level of innovation in a department, the level of maybe efficiency or achievement, the level of bureaucracy. We saw all those things. So in this background and my own experiences of having worked in an ICU, in a rehab unit, and in an emergency department will Help me to give these few examples that I have. Working in the, in the ICU, I've realized that there's a lot of complexity, mm -hmm. complexity in terms of the multiple medical issues that people come in with. There's a lot of end of life decisions to be made. And we sometimes find chaplains sometimes uh, see uh, maybe conflicts going on between the wishes of the patients versus the wishes of family members and even the care team. And so there is this conflict and chaplaincy now is involved with helping people find meaning in these kinds of, in these kinds of situations. And also there's a lot of uncertainty in the ICU. Mm -hmm. People asking the question, would my loved one make it? Is there a chance? This morning I visited a patient and her dad was telling me about his daughter's 11 hours uh, of surgery. And he was saying, this is when we come in terms with the frailty of life and the reality of eternity. And it is frightening. So these are kind of the uncertainties that are happening in the ICUs. And so chaplains are there to help people find meaning in these moments. There is also complexity in terms of the technology that is going on in ICU settings. When you walk into a patient's room, you see all the, the uh, cords, maybe there's a tube down the patient's throat and Family members who pause at the door and say, I don't want to see my loved one in this way. So, and at the times when all those machines start beeping, it is frightening and it's frustrating sometimes. So chaplains are there now to provide this reassurance, maybe pointing family members to the right people to answer their questions. 
And then I realized also that there's a lot of chaplaincy in the, uh, in the ICU could also involve a lot of staff care because nurses go through a lot. Sometimes there's this accumulated grief because they keep coming back to the same experiences every day and there's no time to process and there's no time to, to, to grieve what, what they are going through. And so there's that accumulated grief. In other project that we did at VCU, this level of bureaucracy also, maybe nurses are sometimes receiving these protocols from above that maybe may not sit well with their own values and moral distress may set in. So chaplaincy in that area now is to find ways to develop strategies for coping for staff. Then I will take another unit to compare it now with the ICU. Maybe I, I covered the, the rehab unit. And I have just finished uh, mentoring a CPE resident in the orthopedics unit. And I've realized that in this area, the length of stay is longer than in, than in other areas in the hospital. So the, there's anguish that is long lasting. People have time to process certain things. And there's a lot of grief, maybe the loss of independence, the loss of the sense of control. And maybe they lost, people have lost parts of their bodies. They've been an amputation. And so people are trying to find where their new normal will be. And some people are insisting, I want to go back to my normal, to the way I was. And that's difficult. So chaplaincy in this area will maybe involve a lot of framing and reframing issues and helping people to just journey with those things that they have lost. And maybe I also take the emergency department. It's really different there because it's much more fast paced. And I always say that it, there's the shock factor because maybe in the morning someone is doing fine and in the afternoon they're having a heart attack, maybe they're involved in a car crash or they're having one or two things going on and they are rushed into the emergency room. And so there's hardly any time to process, to process things. And the, the emergency department is the place where I would say the chaplain's pastoral authority is most in use because people are saying, pray for me now before I go for this surgery, baptize my 19 years old who is already in the OR right now because she may not come out. And you find yourself running into the OR to do that baptism without pausing to reflect or ask the question, what is theologically sound to do right now? But you're thinking, what is pastorally important that will bring comfort to the family who are struggling at, at this moment? So that's how different the the emergency department could be. So people ask, needs are more immediate. And so we are satisfying these needs before people start opening up to say, okay, now let me tell you what is going on before we start engaging into those bigger conversations. Your, your mention of maybe rushing into the OR to provide in a, in a Catholic or other, um, you know, certain tradition context, a, a sacramental experience um, it reminds me that it's not difficult to find plenty of stories of chaplains showing up either um, in a, an emergency department section or a, a hospital room once they've been admitted, and the, the patient will say, I don't believe in God, um, I've had a bad experience with religion, um, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. The entire range is what I'm getting at, nothing normative, but the entire range of, of, of belief or, no, or non-belief Every chaplain comes from their own position, philosophically, theologically, whatever, but you are coming into contact with basically everybody. That's, that's the nature of healthcare, that you are gonna come into contact with, some, with a little bit of everything. How have you handled that 
And I would also like to know if being at the Mayo Clinic makes a difference there, because of course this is an elite healthcare institution. And I'm just wondering, have you noticed a difference there in kind of the, the demographics of the people that you're working with as opposed to other parts of the country? Hmm. That's interesting because I don't think I have words to begin to describe the diversity that I see here every day. People come to Mayo Clinic from all over the world. And so I see people from all backgrounds, all religious, all kinds of religious um, traditions and people who have no religious orientation. I walked into a patient's room once and they said to me, I don't have a religious bone in my body. And so I don't think we can have a conversation here. I said, oh, okay, that, that's okay. Uh, there's some things that are important to you that you like to talk about. And they pause and put down their iPad and, and we had a conversation because there are things that are important to them that are not necessarily religious. Yes. And so to me, it's connecting with people on the human level. It's seeing the person before finding out the, maybe the religious back, their religious background and not to make assumptions because Michael, even those who are Christians like myself or within the same, I am Catholic or within the same faith tradition as myself may have their own different understanding of their faith. So I don't walk into the room and say, okay, this is a Catholic patient. And so I am Catholic so I can quickly connect. No, I don't make those assumptions because our understandings the key to my ministry is that I allow the people that I'm caring for to be my teachers in the way I care for them. So I sit down there and I listen. And I hear how is what, is, what are the ways that you want me to care for you? So I went to see, we have a Muslim chaplain here. But recently I went to see a Muslim uh, patient because the Muslim chaplain had gone home for the day. And I talked with him and my hope was to say, okay, I will let the Muslim chaplain know that you are here and he'll be able to come see you the following day. When I was leaving, the, the patient said to me, would you come visit me again? You are very kind. And that taught me something that compassion and hope are the two things that they transcend across every um, religious tradition. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who that person is, what faith background they are, but compassion and hope that we give every day to patients, it makes, it makes a difference. It makes a difference for them. And so to me, connecting with people on the human level and acknowledging our differences and respecting people's values and choices. And in, in, in the case of patient care, knowing when to engage and knowing where to step aside is very important. Knowing where to step aside and to refer to the appropriate um, resources. Right. right. Yeah. You know, that is such an what you're describing is a really intense encounter between two people. I mean, really, it's a, it's a very intimate moment uh, when you're providing that kind of pastoral care. But you are a Transforming Chaplaincy Fellow because of research, which is almost as far from that as possible. You, you zoom out very, very far uh, to conduct this sort of research. So my next question is two parts. A, how did you literally get started in research literacy. I know that you had an interest and so you pursued it, but for those who might be interested but have no idea where to begin, how did you actually get started? And the follow-up to that is, how have you found research literacy helping your own practice? When you walk into a room, how does research knowledge help you become a better chaplain? 
Uh, my, my first contact with uh, chaplaincy research was, was at the uh, Virginia Commonwealth University when I was a chaplain resident. And this is so funny because when I close my eyes, I remember how we used to run around to follow the nurses to ask them to fill in the, the questionnaire. You know, I was working in the cardiac ICU at that time and it is a very, very busy environment. And to make the nurses to sit down and to answer these questions was one thing. But that was very important to me because it showed me at the end of the day that we could actually use research to inform the way we were providing care. And one of the things that we were looking for in that organizational culture project was the perceptions that people have of the chaplain's documentation. Who, who looks at the chaplain's notes? Do they use it? Do they incorporate it into the general plan of care for the patient? And it was kind of like, would it be embarrassing to see that? What kind of notes do I, do, do I put in? Do people even look at it? <laughs> do they use it? And so with all the research that others have been doing, like the ones that was done in uh, Duke University, how we chat, so to me, assessment, research has really informed the way I do assessment and the way I document patient care. Because without proper assessment, maybe some needs, patient needs will go unnoticed and maybe we will miss to provide the kind of care that we would like to provide to, to patients. And so to me, assessment is a first thing that's in the back of my mind. I don't carry a paper with me that say, okay, now you do this step or this step, this step. But the different validated and evidence-based tools and models of spiritual assessment that has been done over the years is helping me to say, okay, I can use this to, be, to inform me. For example, as I said, I mentioned before, I, I cover the rehab unit and the spiritual distress uh, assessment tool is very helpful because there's that need to find a balance there's need to, for the relationship and, and connectedness, maybe to faith community, to family members. And so that helps me. The Hear My Voice study that we are doing here at Mayo Clinic, uh, the questions that we use, the first part of it is based on the FICA spiritual history tool. And it also helps me, I, I realize that it opens up conversation with patients. And so the research that I'm doing is immediately informing me on the way we do that with cancer patients and patients with other advanced uh, diseases. But when I walk into any patient room, I am guided by this research that I am doing. And I've seen that I'm having richer conversations because we go in depth with the kind of questions and assessment that I do. Yeah. What do you think is, to, to play on our own title, what is innovative in the field of, of healthcare chaplaincy today, healthcare chaplaincy research, or, or what areas would you like to see innovation taking place? What's kind of the next frontier in this field? Uh, I think there are a few things out there and I will start from what we have right here. So in the, that Hear My Voice study, we prepare, it's a spiritual life review uh, process. And so we prepare what we call a spiritual legacy document. And to me, that's the innovation, that's unique. And this document holds people's values, their beliefs, and their life learned wisdom. And these are things that they want their family members and friends to hold or to remember them by when they are gone. And so the smile on the 
patients' faces when they receive this document and hold it and read it and see that this is me, this is my life, has really been amazing. And also there is um, something going on in uh, Josh Washington Hospital, the ESPEC, Interprofessional Spiritual Care Education Curriculum that was initiated by Christina Kuchaski and Betty Ferrell. I think that is very amazing because they, do, they train what they call chaplain pairs. And the two sides of the pair is like physicians, social workers, psychologists on the one hand and chaplains on the other. So they train them together to be able to provide integrated care, patient-centered care to, to me that is very important. I want to be part of that future where physicians and psychologists and social workers and chaplains who sit on the same table to provide this holistic care to patients. And then there's uh, also another thing that's happening at uh, Emory University, the uh, cognitively based CBT, I don't know if I can remember this, but it's cognitively based compassion training. And so the, the spiritual care department is using that to train their CPE residents and they're trying to find out if care that is provided by residents who have received this training would be different from care that is offered by those who have not received the training. So I think these things are interesting. But I would like to see innovation in the area of uh, spiritual interventions to people who are saying that I am not religious, I am spiritual. And this population, as we all know, is growing in the United States. So that is the area that I would like to see some innovation. I also like to see innovation in the area of those who are going through spiritual distress and also in the area of cultural sensitivity because most of the time we look at that spiritual coping enhances well-being and things like that. But we look, sometimes we look at specific populations, but I like to see some diversity, some what is what a spiritual coping look like for people with different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. You know, I have been exposed to some degree to the research in healthcare chaplaincy. And so I know firsthand that sometimes you can look at all of this and it, it is so very highly specialized. Um, and, and for someone like me who is not a healthcare chaplain, you can look at it and think, what in the world does this all mean? Um, which is a way of saying, what is special and unique about healthcare chaplaincy that doesn't really exist in any other area? And what can healthcare chaplains teach chaplains who are in other sectors? Uh, I don't know about the word teach, but I know that we have some things in common. And that is why these interviews that we are having through the uh, Chaplaincy Innovation Lab is very important because you are interviewing chaplains from all sectors. You've interviewed the airport chaplain, cha uh, chaplains who offer care to those in transition, and trauma, trauma chaplains, and today we are healthcare chaplaincy. And so I see that I am not very familiar with other areas, but these interviews have been helping me to learn. And I know that we have some things in common, but we also have some things that make us unique. And I think there is a mutuality that we can benefit from you know, we can benefit from each, from each other. But I think a few things that make healthcare chaplaincy unique is that we are clinically trained through the uh, CPE program. And most of the care that we provide is integrated into the greater care of the healthcare system. 
which I don't think maybe a, cha a chaplain in the prison, maybe the care they provide is not integrated into the other things that are happening in the prison. I don't know. I, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm only guessing. And we also provide interventions and maybe provide care and generate interventions that could be incorporated into the patient's care. I think another thing is we work, we have a very transient uh, population while others may have stable people they are there, they are able to view these long-term relationships. Here in healthcare system, we have people coming and going. So that, that's, those are the few things that I think. Oh, and, and in uh, healthcare chaplaincy, we have different kinds of, diverse kinds of specializations. There is a hospice chaplain, there's a bereavement, there is palliative care chaplains. So there's these specialties that we have that spice up healthcare chaplaincy. <laughs> you know, since, since you were so heavily involved in healthcare chaplaincy research, you know where all of the latest work is being done. That's just part of your, of your everyday job. But for those who would like to get, um, who would like to start becoming a little bit more current with that, what are some good resources, aside from the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab, of course, uh, but what are some other places that people might want to look if they want to get involved in this side of, of spiritual care? Uh, I would say those who are just beginning should start by reading reviews. I think reviews are very important. When I opened the ACPE site, I realized that um, the, the reviews that John Ehrman provides are really very interesting. He gives this beautiful synopsis of the different articles. So when you read these and you're able to find your area of interest, I say, oh, I resonate with this. And then now you can delve deeper and go to other places to find more information about that. So please, those who are watching or those who have not yet um, subscribed for the ACPE uh, network newsletter, please do that because those reviews are really important. And then of course, the Transforming Chaplaincy website has a ton of resources for those who are beginning to think about doing research or reading about research. There's a lot of, so you could just go to transformchaplaincy.org to get all these resources. And when you find things that are of interest to you, then you can now go to different uh, journals, maybe the Journal of Healthcare Chaplaincy, the Journal of Pastoral Counseling and something. It, uh, it, it has an odd acronym, but the Journal of Pastoral Care and Counseling, yeah. Yes, yes, Pastoral Care and Counseling, and also maybe Psycho-Oncology, because they would touch on spiritual care things there as well. So starting small from reading the reviews and then entering into the other um, sources, but I would say go to the Transforming Chaplaincy website. There's a lot of resources and directions that can guide people to how to go forward. I want to circle back to something that just occurred to me as, you're, as you mentioned psycho-oncology uh, and, and how spirituality plays into that. And that is that many, many chaplains are working in some sort of setting where there is a, a professional network of people that they encounter, but they are not integrated into that team like you mentioned with healthcare chaplains. They are not part of a, of a comprehensive um, care setting. So, I mean, you could, you could almost come up with any sector at all. Um, you know, there may be universities where a chaplain from a nearby congregation volunteers, but they are not part of the university administration. 
Um, there may be, you know, there are chaplains at casinos, but they are not on the staff. They just sort of wander in and they, and they provide uh, whatever kind of pastoral care is, is necessary and they leave. What kind of barriers have you come into in terms of, of working on an interdisciplinary team and how have you seen those barriers be overcome uh, to become more integrated into that person's encounter? I would say the first one for me is language. And when I say language, I don't mean like the English language. I mean, we talked about the differences of different departments. When you understand the culture of each department, you will understand that there is a language. You know, I, right here at Mayo, I cover the neuro ICU. Working in the neuro ICU, there's some, language, there's, there's some things that I need to know to be able to communicate, to be able to communicate with the staff. So to me, there is this barrier if someone says to me, I'm having some sort of kind of surgery. And I said, like, what is that? <laughs> but so talking with the staff, to me, this barrier, going for rounds helps me to understand this language and talking to the staff before I go into a patient's room to give me a background of what is going on. They'll say, okay, this person has just had this brain surgery and something has been put in their head to monitor their seizure. And this is what is going on. Then that helps me to understand that this person is going through this. They may be confused when we are having this conversation. And so understanding that language in that department is, is a helpful way to overcome the barrier, both for staff care and for patient care in that, in that department. Yeah. And also the, there is the, the emphasis that chaplains become an, a part of the interdisciplinary team. Understanding this understanding helps is a key to this because if you cannot communicate with the other, mem other members of the, of the care team, then how are you going to bring through or make others see the value of the work that chaplains are doing? So communicating that is very important and moving from the, also one barrier with chaplain documentation as research has shown us has been, we document sometimes like, okay, I was there, I provided listening presence, or oh, there was huge family presence, so what? So I visited a family uh, recently, mechanical support was about to be withdrawn from that patient, but the family members were not in the same place. Some were saying, okay, we agree. Our loved one has suffered enough, let this end. But some were saying, we want aggressive care to continue. And so communicating that in my note, helped the care team in the care conference that was to hold the following day. They knew that they were speaking to family members who were divided, who were not in the same place of understanding. And so they knew how to communicate better with them because they had this background that I put in my, in my note. So moving from that, just observing and describing what was happening to really interpreting what was going on in the room that would help the other members of the care team. You know, I think that's such valuable advice because, you know, on the one hand, a, a hospital or any other healthcare setting is so full of specialized knowledge that understanding, just understanding a conversation between, uh, you know, the, the, the medical providers has got to be, that's a daunting challenge on its own. But on the other hand, if you are a chaplain in almost any other setting, 
you can't just walk in and say, here I am, who needs help? Uh, that doesn't work. Um, prior to all of this, I did a lot of work with chaplains in seaports, and that is a, a field of chaplaincy that almost nobody knows about, but they have to know a lot about how that work unfolds because they're operating in a very dangerous environment. They're operating with people who, in many cases, don't speak English. Um, the conditions are not great. And so if they don't know all of that going into it, they're not going to be effective chaplains. So I think that's really valuable advice in terms of just learning as much about the culture, mm -hmm. the communication styles, whatever setting it is, that has got to be just such a, um, such a useful thing. I am aware of the time here, so I wanna move into just a couple of questions. Um, one person said that, that they read with interest your study on spiritual life review, um, and I'm just passing along the question, so forgive me if I butchered here, but uh, she asked, will that tool be available for others to use? I am a chaplain in long-term care. Yes, that tool is available. It's, it, it does not belong to us anymore because we've published articles okay. from that study and so yes, people can, can use that to, to do this uh, same project in other settings. And where is the easiest place to find it? Um, I would say in one of the articles that we publish, we, you, you go to the reference section and one of the articles is, I am at a loss right now because I don't have the right here. <laughs> in my hands. Uh, I don't remember the names of all the articles, but if you Google Kate Peterman yeah. and they hear my voice project, you will see all the articles that have been published from this study. And then you will get it from there. I'm seeing now uh, George Fichette provided very helpfully a number Thank of- Thank you, George. <laughs> He's telling me it's in all of those references I just posted. So uh, okay. if you look in the chat box, there are a series of uh, four or five references here. And so okay. you will be able to, uh, to find that in there as well. Um, and again, this might be a silly question because I don't understand the, the complexity of it. Is this the same thing as the spiritual legacy document? So the study is a life review uh we do a live, live review, so we do a digitally recorded interview for patients with advanced cancer, neurologic diseases, or other advanced illnesses. And we have this a questionnaire that we give before that interview, where we're trying to measure religious coping, quality of life, peacefulness, and emotional well-being. So after they do this questionnaire, we do the interview, and after the interview, we give them this questionnaire again. So after the recording of that interview, we transcribe, give it back to the patients, they edit it and send it back to us, and then we do the spiritual legacy document for them. And we are able to give up to 25 copies to each patient. Okay. And that is all part of the, of the citations I just posted. That entire methodology could be replicated in other places is what I'm getting at. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So to the, uh, to the attendee that posted that question, I hope that answers your question. I think it does. Uh, Biba has been very thorough, uh, very thorough in that. All right. Again, I'm looking at the clock and I don't want to keep anyone longer 
then, uh, then we have to. So Biba, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. This has been, uh, this has been so wonderful, um, which I knew it would. I have known Biba now for a couple of years and she's always been uh, a delight to, to talk with. And you can also find her uh, on the Transforming Chaplaincy podcast. I think that episode is up. If, if it's not up now, it will be soon enough. Uh, so thank you very much, Biba, for your time. This has been wonderful, um, and I look forward to, uh, to working together in the future. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Thank you, everyone. Have a good afternoon, and uh, we will talk again in 2019. So have, uh, have a nice holiday season, and we'll see you in the new year. Bye-bye.